Amen. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. That's a day we can all look forward to, right? We say Maranatha, Lord. For now, let's continue our worship as we dive back into the book of Psalms, and in particular, Psalm 55. Psalm 55. We got a long one on our hands this morning. So if you'd please stand, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's word, we'll dive right in. Again, Psalm 55. This is God's word. For the choir director, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they shake wickedness down upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has covered me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away to be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around upon her walls. Excuse me, they go around her upon her walls. And wickedness and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it the one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, O man, a man my equal, my close companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet counsel together, who walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon God, and Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan, and he will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. For they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the ones who sit enthroned from old, Selah. Because they do not change, do not fear God. My companion has put forth his hand against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter. But his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of corruption. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. 
but I will trust in you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would change our hearts through this text. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me, well, as, like I said, as you can see, we've got a lot to get to here this morning, so we're just going to dive right in. Uh, one of the most amazing aspects of the Psalms, many from over 3,000 years ago, is their relevance and applicability for life on earth today. The Psalms, along with the rest of the scriptures, are really a gift from heaven, which say, consider the lives of these faithful men and women of the past and use them as an example for how to navigate through the rest of your life in this evil and corrupt world system. Here's the testimony of those who were also considered aliens and strangers in the land, but from three millennia ago. Here's how they dealt with some of the very same circumstances we find ourselves in today. Here's some of the things that happened in David's life, for example. A life with, which was not full of sunshine and roses, but rather it was a life full of struggle and trials, tribulations. Like in this psalm, it's almost as if God is saying in Psalm 55 here, watch how I use this man as an example for my children to come. Watch him in the fight of the faithful. Look how he's struggling, battling as a called man of God in a corrupted world system. See how he suffered so long ago, just as you are suffering so in the here and now, my son and my daughter. And now... Watch how, by my grace and through my strength, he responds in faith. Then go and do likewise. That's what's incredible about the Psalms. Totally different time, totally different place, totally different setting. But God has given us these glorious texts to draw from as a gift so that we can take the principles of what we learn through the the plight of others and, and seek to apply them to our own lives as we seek to spend the rest of our time on earth living in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. The timeless, uh, timelessness and and relevance of the Psalms is an incredible gift from God. And this 55th Psalm is certainly no exception. And I'll just warn you right from the get-go, the first half of this Psalm, the first 15 verses are actually very intense. They're very heavy, very raw, very dark even. But they're very authentic, very sincere, to the point where many Christians, including myself, have actually found themselves thinking, hmm, that's how I feel. Or that's how I would have said it, though I couldn't find the words, or maybe I just didn't want to find the words or vocalize the words. That would be too much transparency. I would put myself out there too much. I'd be in too vulnerable a position. I'd be far too susceptible to being judged or even condemned for not having enough faith for not being as as strong as I ought to be. So we put up a front, and we we put up this facade. We wear our Sunday morning smiles loudly and proudly. Not David, though. There's no holding back here with King David. In this moment, he's as real as he can be. He can't help himself as his trembling hand puts pen to parchment, and he bears his soul for the record. The record which he then hands over to the choir director as a mass kill. Hands to the choir director to be put to music. 
that perhaps other children of God find themselves in similar situations may be strengthened by his example. Example. Again, what a gift this is for all of us here today. You're being given a gift through this psalm. The first part of the psalm is dark, to be sure. But in the end, I pray you'll see it for what it truly is, a gift from the Lord to his people. As we again meet up with this king, who in verse 1 cries out, in sheer desperation, give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. Hear me, Lord, please hear your child. I'm facing yet another agonizing trial in this life, but my desire as your king is to respond to this trial as you would have me respond. So hear my plea. I beg you, hear my petition. But don't just hear it. See, that's not enough. I actually need you to turn your divine attention toward my direction and answer me, he says. We can sympathize with this, right? There's an extreme comfort for the believer knowing that God, in fact, hears the prayers of those who belong to him, but we're not truly at peace, not truly at rest or content unless he answers those prayers one way or another, right? Same thing here. David says, don't turn away, don't hide yourself from me, but please hear my prayer, but don't hear me only, Lord, please answer my prayer. He says, I am restless in my complaint. I am surely distracted. So this is a complaint here. David is literally complaining to God. But wait a minute. A complaining believer? I thought we weren't supposed to complain. Stand up tall. Be strong. Stiffen up that upper lip. And don't you complain. (laughs) Says who? Who says we can't complain to God? We see it right here. Complain away. I think Spurgeon said it best, though. The faithful man or woman uh, may not complain of God, but we may complain to God. In other words, by all means, let your complaints about life on this earth and the struggle in this world as aliens in a foreign land be made known to God. As long as you don't get it twisted and start sinfully placing the blame for all your struggles upon God. Example, the grumbling of the Israelites after being freed from Egyptian captivity. After all the miracles, after all the plagues, the hail, the blood, the frogs, the death of the firstborn Egyptians, the the people of Egypt loading them up with gold and silver, telling them, get out of here, leave us. After the direct fulfillment of promises of, of liberation, which they waited over 400 years to see come to pass, their response to Moses was then to then complain about the manner in which God chose to bring them out. Why'd you bring us out here, Moses? Is is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than for us to die in the wilderness. You know what that means. Just like we told you back there, we'd rather be Pharaoh's slaves than God's slaves. If this is his idea of letting my people go, we have no water, we have no meat, no place to lay our head. 
You aren't judging justly, Moses. What kind of operation are you running here, pal? Sure, Moses happened to be the human instrument God used to set them free, but ultimately their grumbling and complaining to Moses was rooted in their grumbling and complaining about God. God didn't do what they wanted him to, uh, him to do. We may hear or do the very same thing in our time, right? Oh, I can't believe he's making me go through this conflict at work. I can't believe I don't have a better marriage. I can't believe he gave me this illness. I can't believe he would allow this awful thing to happen to me. I'm so angry with God right now. I've heard folks say that. I've heard people say that. I'm angry with God. Someone told me recently, oh, I'm not on speaking terms with God. I felt like saying, what in the world are you talking about? We don't get to complain about God, be angry with God. Why not? He's perfect. The only perfect. David knows this, and notice how his reverence for and adoration of God never wavers. He never makes the mistake, the awful mistake, as we are oft tempted to do, of holding the God of Israel to the same standards that we hold our fellow man. And frankly, I don't care what happens in our lives, we must never hold him to the same standards as we hold each other. Never. No, David said, I'm complaining to you, which is allowed, even reasonable, but I'm not complaining about you. To complain about the king of kings would be an exercise in not only futility, but also utter foolishness. David is not grumbling against God here. He's petitioning God. This is a cry for help, and he's not going to drag God's character through the mud in the process. I'm angry with you, God. Now hear my plea. No. No, no. He's crying out in sheer desperation in what is a very dark season in his life. And notice it gets darker as you go along. I'm restless, he says. I'm unstable. I'm constantly moving about in distress. I'm being tossed to and fro. I'm unsettled. That's what this means. I'm greatly unsettled as I'm distracted in my complaint. I think a better translation of this word distracted is moaning. Some translations say, I must moan. I'm distraught over my complaint and moaning with great lamentation. Have you ever had such angst, such anxiety in your life? All you can do is moan? I have. Sure. Well, what's causing David to moan so? Why is David so distraught and and distracted here? Verse 3, because of the voice of my enemy. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they shake wickedness down upon me, and anger they bear a grudge against me. The slander, the pressure, the anger, the hostility of wicked men and women is weighing on his soul to the point where it nearly crushes him. More on these enemies soon, but first, watch how he, he immediately returns to his complaint. Even cranking up the descriptors of his soul agony a few notches here. Verse 4, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror has covered me. Look at those words in this one verse alone. A heart full of anguish. 
terror, horror, death, fear, trembling. This is King David we're talking about here. Very likely later in life as well, though we don't know that for sure. But here's King David, this mighty king, this man after God's own heart, surely a believer, surely a faithful man, a child of God. Here he is trembling with fear, plagued by the terrors of death. Now, some folks say Christians ought not to have any fear at all. Do you know that? Do you know people who say that? No anxiety, no depression. Why such fear would only prove they're not actually genuine believers, as ultimately they're acting in unbelief. Well, I suppose folks who make such claims have not yet read the Psalms. Psalm 55, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or the end of the gospel accounts is the disciples fled into the night, or Paul's letter to Timothy, or Peter's first epistle, or the writings of Augustine, or Luther, or Bunyan, or Wesley, or Edwards, or Kierkegaard, or Cooper, all who dealt with varying forms of anxiety and despondency. I suppose they never read of Charles Spurgeon's battle with depression when he said, I have suffered many times from severe sickness and frightful mental depression seeking almost to despair. When was this? When he was an unbeliever? When he was 16 and below? No. This was when he was a 40-plus-year-old man writing lectures to his students. Almost every year I've been laid aside for a season. For flesh and blood cannot bear the strain, at least such flesh and blood as mine. He said, uh, there are times when our spirits betray us. We sink into darkness. We slip into the bottomless pits where our souls can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. There's no reasoning with depression, he said. A remedy is hard to find. Quote, we may as well be fighting with the mist as with the shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. That was Charles Spurgeon's life, year after year after year after year. This is the condition of David's heart and soul here in Psalm 55 to the point where he says in verse 6, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away, be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I just want to get away. I just want to escape. I want to flee. I want to leave it all behind and climb up into a cave and find safety and solitude. Then I would find sweet rest. Right now, I am restless. In that cave, I would be restful. Oh, how this resonates with the unsettled souls of our day. I can even think of times in my own life where I think to myself, what in the world are you doing here? Why subject yourself to such abuse? Move away, flee, take your family and get out of here. Become a traveling preacher. But that's not the way. That's not the way. Tuck tail and run. We're not called to do that. You know, some people, though, they flee by other means. They become workaholics. They join various social clubs. No peace at home, so they look for any and every excuse to get away. Just stop going there. Some folks escape through sports. 
entertainment, hobbies, even things that aren't necessarily bad in themselves, just distractions. Of course, it won't be long before they escape into more tantalizing preoccupations, drinking, drugs, sex, pornography. That's a big one today. Oh, video games is another. Fighting age men distracted by the games of children. But all the same, they're, they're all attempts to escape, to flee the harsh realities of life. That's the temptation of David here. Forget this, man. I am out. I'm out of here. Verse six is, verses 6 through 8 is his contemplation of what the ideal life would look like here. David is idealizing the perfect life. No struggles, no trials, no tribulation, no sin even. But I'm here to tell you, such a life is nowhere to be found this side of glory. David knows this. Still remarkable, though. I mean, we're talking about the king of Israel here. The most powerful man on earth here looking for the next nearest exit, right? Oh, that I had wings like a dove? I would flee? He says, I would lodge in the wilderness. Then, Selah, pause and meditate. Okay, okay. Let's take a deep breath here. Let's let these thoughts settle down a little bit. I'm not going to leave. But then, just like that, he goes right back to it. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. He can't help himself. This is how agonizing this moment is for David here. As he writhed about in horror, to the depths of his very soul. And now, verse 9, we begin to see the actual cause for his complaint. Notice how as we go along here, the reason for this anguish becomes more and more clear. He starts out with another reference to the wicked from back in verse 3. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in this city. Excuse me. Day and night they go around her and upon her walls. Wickedness and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. In other words, society is crumbling <clears throat> before my very eyes. I am so sorry about that. Society is crumbling before my very eyes. This city is crumbling, this holy city. Your city, O God. She is full of strife and violence. It's full of deception and oppression, affliction and destruction. It's corrupted, it's perverted, it's blasphemous, and I'm tired of it. This could very well be a blog post from 21st century America, couldn't it? What's going on in this country should terrify us. Make us sick to our stomach. The deliberate destruction of the family. The destruction of marriage. The destruction of innocent lives in the womb. Thoroughly, and I mean thoroughly corrupted, dishonest politicians and world leaders. To the point where someone once said, the rules are simple. They lie to us. We know they're lying. They know we know they're lying. But they keep lying to us. And we keep pretending to believe them. 
There's almost nothing worse in this world than a liar. And boy, do we got them, top to bottom. All this should cause us great soul anguish. David saw what was going on in God's holy city. He was crushed by it. The only difference is, as king, he felt responsible for the decay in many ways. So he went back to the Lord with his complaint. I'm truly in anguish here, God. And this is an attack on you, ultimately. So, Lord, please do something about it. Confuse their speech, he says. Divide their tongues as you did at the Tower of Babel. Disrupt the communication of the wicked, is what he's saying. Please do something here. And then the real comes in verse 12, okay? Here's where we see the real vulnerability, the real heart cry. We see what's going on out in the city, Lord. I see it, you see it, nothing is hidden from your sight, but you and I both know that's not the true reason for the anguish within me. Oh, Lord, here is why I'm weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care. Enough generalizations here. Here's why I'm really struggling and suffering. Here's why I'm distraught and moaning, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. In other words, it's not ultimately about what goes on within the city walls and in these streets. I know, Lord, that in your strength I could get control of this city in an instant. And it's not necessarily someone outside of these palace walls. It's not one of my many foreign enemies. If that were the case, I could handle that. I've been down that road many times. I could mount my steed, organize my chariots, and ride off fully confident in our ability to overthrow my slanderous enemies. You want 200 Philistine foreskins? I'll have them to you tonight. I've done it before. But it's not the wicked Philistines, is it, Lord? They're not my greatest concern at the moment. No. An even greater wound has been uh, inflicted on this mighty king. It's not my enemy who reproaches or disdains me, but, verse 13, it is you, a man my equal, my close companion, my familiar friend, We who had sweet counsel together walked in the house of God in the throng. And there it is. The lament, the lamenting over general wickedness, it was legit, warranted. But this is the real reason for the suffering in this psalm. David had been betrayed by someone close to him, someone he had confided in, someone he had counseled, maybe even received counsel from. He was betrayed by someone he trusted, stabbed in the back by someone he considered to be a friend, yea, even a brother in the Lord. Now, some, must, some have said this must have been Absalom when he sought to take the throne of his father. I don't, I don't think that's the case, but we have no way of being sure. Others say it was Ahithophel, the trusted advisor of David who actually sided with Absalom in his attempts to take his father's throne. Some say it had to be Ahithophel's attempts to convince all of Jerusalem that David was a rotten king. Nobody should follow him, but Absalom would be there to make it all better. 
Maybe so. But we don't know that. Again, he doesn't say here. It's not even clear in the superscription who betrayed him. But what is clear is that a great treachery had occurred here. I'm sure you've had this happen to you uh, one way or another. Someone you thought would be a lifelong friend, someone you cared deeply for, someone you loved and trusted, somebody you may have even considered to be a part of your family, maybe someone in the church, brother or sister in Christ, betrays you for whatever reason. I mean, whether due to jealousy or vengeance, self-exaltation, some misconception or fantasy of how you've wronged them, Most likely, betrayal comes through self-preservation. That's the most common, I think. As they begin to turn on you, slander your character, lie about you, seek to turn others away from associating with you with zero regard for the major effects and consequences their lives may have. They're hell-bent on destroying you at whatever cost, even by way of gross manipulation and blatant false accusations. It's among the most, if not the most, upsetting and unfortunate aspects of human relationship, the betrayal of a friend. Our ability to turn on each other in a moment's notice. Yes, even in the church. My close companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet counsel together, walked in the house of God in the throng. In other words, nothing, including our most intimate spiritual confessions, were off limits. You sought transparency and vulnerability in counsel only to go and on to use that same vulnerability to attack me later in your, in your bitterness and your anger and your jealousy and resentment toward my position. That's what's happening here with the king. And again, I'm sure it's happened to most, if not all of us in here today. And it crushes us to the core when it does. Again, Spurgeon said, uh, the trials caused by ungrateful professors are harder to bear than the coarsest attack from avowed enemies. But how could we expect anything less? I mean, the same thing happened to our Lord before he was betrayed by a close friend, a disciple, one of the 12, a man who had been with him for three years, three years on this earth, every day seeing the perfect miracles, hearing the perfect teaching, receiving from the lips of God himself the sweet, sweet counsel of how to live in this world, why not being of this world, even hearing how a person could enter the kingdom of heaven by faith alone in the promised son whom the God of Israel sent into the world. He heard it. Luke says on the night Jesus was delivered over into the hands of lawless men for sinners, his sweat became like great drops of blood. He knew full well what lie ahead. He knew he was about to become sin, to take the place of him, bear the penalty of sin for all whom the Father had given to him. He knew he was but mere hours away from the agonizing realization of bearing the separation from his Father for the first time in all of eternity so that all who believe in him All who call upon his name alone for salvation would never have to be. Yet knowing all this, Matthew says he tells his disciples, get up, 
Let's go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Not, hurry, get up, let's spread our wings and fly like a dove into the cave. But rather, he makes a beeline toward his persecutors. Let us go toward my accuser, toward my betrayer, and ultimately toward his death. Matthew says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up. And with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs that came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Friend. Even in this moment, friend. But it was a backhanded salutation. Judas was no friend. He was a snake. He was the son of perdition and dwelled by Satan himself. He was a backstabber, a turncoat, a treacherous liar. Jesus says, do what you came to do. And he did. Then they came, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. First application, don't do that. Don't be a backstabbing Judas to your friends and family. Certainly not to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you have these tendencies to accuse a righteous man or woman of God on false pretenses, you may have much more in common with Judas Iscariot than you think. Second application. If bearing such betrayal was true in the life of our Lord, how could we possibly expect any less? In other words, be ready when this time inevitably comes in your life. Prepare for it. Respond in Christ-likeness in the midst of it, then learn from it, grow from it, and ultimately never seek to find vindication in other sinful people, but only in the Father. I'm getting ahead of myself. That was the next application. Listen, this is just a part of it. This is just a part of it. People will turn on you. They will turn on you. Even the closest of friends. Paul, writing to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith showed me much harm. The Lord will award him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself. There, there you go. Listen, we can trust people, be vulnerable with people, be transparent with people. Just be on guard. Be on guard. Because you never know when they could turn on you. Be on guard against him yourself, Paul says, for he vigorously opposed our words. At, first, at my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. May it not be counted against them, Paul says. People will fail you, Timothy. That's just human nature. But not the Lord. The Lord stood with me, strengthened me, so that through me the preaching might be fulfilled and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Spurgeon 
David, Paul, even Christ himself dealt with such treachery. So why would we think that we shouldn't have to do the same? That we won't have to suffer the same? Well, how does David respond? How does he respond? I think there's an, an initial response in verse 15, then a more balanced response throughout the remainder of the psalm. Now, you have to look at verse 15 in your own Bibles here. Don't take my word for it. Some will say, I can't believe Matt said that. He's so angry. But da- <laughs> we'll talk later. <laughs> no. But David wrote verse 15. Not me. Well, what does David ask the Lord to do about it? About such an obvious attack from a wolf in sheep's clothing. Verse 15. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. In other words, kill him. I'm just reading what it says here. Oh, Lord, see how they're deceiving me in life? Now, I'm asking you to deceive them in death. Like Korah and his followers when they betrayed Moses. Let the earth swallow him up alive. In that same way, kill this man. Kill him. That's why I don't think this was Absalom, personally. Maybe Ahithophel, but not Absalom. David didn't want his boy to die, right? He didn't want anyone to kill his son. But this is pretty intense here. Why such vehemence? Why such rage? One commentator explains to have trusted, to find his trust betrayed, to have been one man, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to have been one with a man in public and in private, bound to him by personal ties and by the ties of religion, and then to find honor, faith, aff- affection all cast to the winds? This it was that seemed so terrible. This it was that called for the withering curse. It's righteous indignation. Another said, David called down God's judgment on his former friend and his ungodly allies by opposing David. This traitor was also opposing God, since David was the Lord's anointed. So wait a minute, are you saying that we ought to take this principle from David and call upon the Lord to bring bring about the demise of our enemies? I'm not saying we shouldn't. I think something that drastic, however, demands our continuing to read the rest of the psalm. Verse 16 is actually the turning point of this whole song. A great shift takes place here as the focus goes from his complaint and anguish concerning the turncoat to his trust and dependence upon the Lord. Okay, Watch this, watch this shift. As for me, I shall call upon God. Yahweh will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will bring my complaint and moan. He's still complaining, still moaning. And he will hear my voice. What we see begin to take place here is David's struggle. His going back and forth between the turmoil and the trust, between the pain and the promises, between the restlessness and the restfulness, which at the end of the day, he knows can only come from his Lord. Therefore, I will call upon him and he will save me. 
He's talking about the victory which will come from heaven as he calls upon and surrenders his trials to the Father. And notice repeatedly he does this, not just once, at least three times a day. He even says in verse 18, he will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me. Oh, what sweet words those are. That's true vindication, true triumph. Now David's cry is, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. God who sees the heart will redeem me. He's got my back, even if everyone else turns on me. He will redeem my soul in peace. These are sweet words indeed. But then he goes right back to the violation of the wicked. Only now it's different because he has a godly confidence. Listen to the difference from this section and the the one in the first 15 verses. For there are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them. Even the one who sits enthroned from of old. Selah. Because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter. But his heart was war. You may know people like this. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were drawn swords. In other words, this guy is a liar and a wolf and a con man. But his reputation precedes him, not only before men, but most importantly, before God. God who will vindicate me in the end. So David writes in verse 22 to the choir director to put to music for worship in the sanctuary of God. Hear this, O faithful men and women of Jerusalem. Cast your burden upon Yahweh and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be, shake, to be shaken. That's not a suggestion, my brothers and sisters. That's a promise from the very Holy Spirit himself. David says, yes, I have enemies on all sides. Yes, I have enemies outside the city and inside the city. Enemies from without, enemies from within. Even some of my closest friends, family members, my own son even. Even they turned on me. But I will call upon Yahweh, and he will save me. I will cast my burden upon him. As I know full well, he's not only able to bear it, but he will even allow me to endure it. He will sustain me. Peter says the same thing. A man very familiar with fear, anxiety, despondency. Using the words from this very psalm. Cast your anxiety upon the Lord, he says. Why? Because he cares for you. And, and this is a care that does not waver. It will not fail. This is not a fickle care. One writer said, no, the text does not say God will remove the burden, but that God will give the strength and support to bear it. He will strengthen the believer to endure the opposition and by faith overcome it because he will not permit the righteous to be moved. That's the main takeaway here. The main principle that we can walk away with today. How do we bear the burden of betrayal? We make our complaints known to the Lord. We cast our care upon him and depend fully upon his sustaining grace to allow us to endure the consequences. Okay. So I would say again, 
Are you in a season of betrayal? Are you bearing the heavy burden or heavy weight of being backstabbed by someone you were close to? Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Complain to the Lord. This is a free pass to complain. Tell the Lord all your troubles. He knows them anyway. So you may as well bring them to his feet. Complain to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Amen? Amen. Finally, we close in verse 23. What James Boyce called the final glance at the wicked. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of corruption. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. This is the last glance at the friend who has betrayed him, but the tone is completely different now. In other words, this person deeply, deeply wounded me, but I can't give them any more of my attention. I can't allow them to consume my thoughts anymore. I have taken it to the Lord. I have cast this upon the Lord, and I am trusting the Lord to deliver me from it. And now I'm moving forward, focusing on living out the rest of my life in a way that is honoring and pleasing, not to other men, but to the Lord, but to God himself. This is all confirmed in the final words of the psalm, but I will trust in you. He's gone from fearful back to faithful all in a single psalm. He says emphatically, I will trust in you. Again, dismissing his preoccupation with his betrayer. I will trust in you. I will be preoccupied with you. I will find my vindication in you, O Lord, and I will live out the rest of my life, not for others, but only for you. My brothers and sisters, I'll close with this. Ultimately, there is only one who is worthy of our full trust. Ultimately, there is only one who is worthy of our full trust. There is only one who is worthy of our full confidence, faith, and hope, and that is Yahweh himself. He will never fail you. Do you understand that? He will never forsake you. He will never betray you. He will never despise you. Why? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he, also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not also with him graciously sustain, deliver, and then vindicate his children from all those who would seek to cause us harm? The answer is he will both here and now and forevermore. And you can leave this place today with the full confidence and assurance knowing this is true because he promised it in his very precious word. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's close now in prayer and we'll have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in musical worship. Lord, we thank you so much again for this wonderful opportunity and privilege really to open up your holy and inspired word, to be encouraged by it, very encouraging words uh, that you wrote through David. And it's, it's a joy to, to see the example that you've given us in his life, and we pray that we can respond 
uh, in turn, that we can put our trust in you fully. It's a joy to do so, Lord. It's, a, it's an absolute joy. We love you. We love your gospel. We love your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.